the book of Colossians. We are in Colossians chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 11 through 15 this morning. But before we uh, read the word together, just by way of introduction, uh, I, I read recently about something called um, that UPS pilots have. Um, and apparently this is true, but they, they have this form that they call a gripe sheet. So what this is is pilots at the end of every flight... They, they would fill out kind of a sheet, and it's called the gripe sheet, of sort of what was wrong, you know, was something wrong with the aircraft, just something that they want the mechanics to look into, you know, noticing something loose, or, you know, whatever, that kind of thing. And they, they would have it as a gripe sheet, and then before they would fly the plane again, they would see the mechanic's response to the gripe sheet. Yep, we took care of the problem, or, you know, it wasn't anything, or whatever. So they have this thing called a gripe sheet. And so uh, somebody posted online about, like, these are actual gripes that pilots had and the actual solutions that the mechanics then presented to them. So I wanted to read a couple of them just because I, I found them really funny. So a uh, pilot said, the left main inside tire almost needs replacement. And uh, the maintenance man said, almost replaced left inside main tire. So I thought, okay. Uh, the next one, there was a pilot who said, test flight okay, except auto land very rough. The response they got, auto land not installed on this aircraft. So, okay. Um, the pilot said, something loose in the cockpit. The response, something tightened in the cockpit. This one was one of my favorites. Uh, pilot says, DME volume unbelievably loud. Uh, solution, DME volume set to a more believable level. Um, they had, the pilot had a gripe of IFF inoperative in off mode. Um, so the response was, IFF always inoperative in off mode. <laughs> the pilot had one that says, suspected crack in windshield. Uh, the mechanic wrote back, suspect you're right. Um, <laughs> this, one, this one was probably my favorite one. The, the pilot says, aircraft handles funny. Uh, the mechanic wrote back, aircraft warned to straighten up, fly right, and be serious. <laughs> they had the, uh, the pilot wrote, uh, target radar hums. And the, the, the mechanic wrote back, Reprogram target radar with lyrics. They had one. Uh, pilot, or the pilot says, mouse in cockpit. The mechanic says, cat installed. And then finally, the pilot had one. Noise coming from under instrument panel. Sounds like a child pounding on something with a hammer. The mechanic wrote, took hammer away from child. So that's... Uh, obviously, some of these mechanics had a sense of humor to things, right? They were kind of... Hope, hopefully, this was a sense of humor and kind of writing back and probably knew these pilots. I'm guessing it was just one mechanic who just wrote all these, but obviously most of what we're seeing here, right, is a joke, but, but we all understand, right, there's an inherent danger. Boy, if this is the way they're really taking this, this is, this is a real problem, right? If airlines don't take safety seriously, there's, there's some real problems here. If, if they don't offer real solutions to real problems, there is a danger. When well, our passage this morning, Paul is pointing us to a real danger and a worse and eternal da- danger something that we need to be ta- that needs to be taken very seriously. And to our danger, we are offered a, a real solution, one much more lasting than what any mechanic would bring. We are given a solution to our deepest of problems. But the, the question in this passage isn't, is God taking our, our situation seriously? Is He taking our problem seriously? Indeed, He is. But question really for us this morning is, do we live in light of the solution that He provides? Do we live in light of the solution He provides? We're going to be looking at, again, chapter 2, verses 11 through 15 this morning. And and the main point we're going to be looking at is this, that those alive in Christ are dead to everything else. Those alive in Christ 
are dead to everything else. Let's read Colossians 2, verses 11 through 15. In him you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, by putting off by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us of all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. Three points we're going to be looking at from this passage as we, look, as we think of God's solution to our deep problem. And point number one is death. Point number one is death. And for that, I want to look at verse 11 through the first half of verse 12 again. It says, In him you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ having been buried with him in baptism. So this passage is, is, is picking up from kind of the main point of what immediately precedes it. And what immediately precedes it is Paul is making this one large point in verse 9 and 10 that in Jesus Christ, the fullness of deity dwells and that this Christ now dwells in us and he fills us. So the, these verses are really an expansion of that point or kind of a a deeper understanding of that point, he's explaining more of what it means to be filled with Christ, of what it means that we are filled in Him and with Him. And so he uses in these verses two word pictures to really make one point. In verse 11, he says that if we are in Christ, we have been circumcised in Him. Now that can kind of be a confusing idea and maybe even just kind of an awkward sounding idea, but, but basically it means this. Right, so in the Old Testament, circumcision was an outward sign of a covenantal reality. It was a sign that it was an outward sign and seal that you were one of God's children and that one of His one of His chosen ones. That you were one of His beloved. And so today, the closest parallel we would have to that something like that is is baptism, which He actually is going to get to in a moment. But it's this outward sign of of, it, of, of the inward reality of being one of His children. And he says that now, now we have this, but it's, it's not a physical thing we now have, but, we, but it's by the circumcision of Christ. And so what, what, what is he saying that before there was this, in a sense, this small physical removal from the body, but now we have a much greater removal. We have a better removal. We have our old man being removed from us. We have our sinful identity has now been removed from us. It has been removed from us in Jesus Christ. And further to that point, he says, we have been buried with him in baptism. And that's the second picture he kind of gives us here is, is, is being baptized. And, and in baptism, right, one, in baptism, one goes under the water. And it, and it represents going under the water. It repre represents going under in death. It represents also, yes, the, the cleansing nature of water. But, but even the cleansing that we have that, rep, that baptism represents is, is the cleansing of sins through death. And he is saying that this is what we did. We were buried as he was buried. So when we place our faith in Jesus Christ, we died with Christ. There's a, a real death that takes place. And so we died with Christ. And so when we died with Christ, we died also to the world, to the grip of Satan, to our flesh. We died in Christ and we died with Christ. And so Paul is noting that when we 
by aligning with Christ, we, we participated in the cross of Christ by dying with Him. Though we didn't physically die that day, for all intents and purposes, we did with Him as He was our representative in death. You know, so this, this, this idea is one that Jesus is our, our representative in, in, in dying with us and dying for us. And, and I think that's the, right, that's the right image, that's the right word. But even that idea, I think, in the day and age we live in, where we, where we have sort of government and government officials that represent us, I think we can lose some of what it means that Jesus Christ really did represent us, right? Like, because we, we each have representatives at, at various forms of government. And sometimes we would say, you know, I know they represent us, but they don't really represent me, or they don't really speak for my ideas. They voted differently than how I would have voted for. Or sometimes there are representatives that we can look at them and say, they, they seem to be after their interests, not my interests, right? And so there's just so many times where we can have a representative for us and say, but they didn't really reflect me, right? We, we probably all felt that to various degrees at every level of government. So we can say, well, this person represents me, but they don't really reflect me in any way. Listen, we need, we need to be very clear about what Jesus has done as our representative. Listen, we weren't there, but we were absolutely included in the death of Christ. When Christ died, we died with Him, which would be terrible news if the story of the gospel were to end there. But glory to God, it most certainly does not end there. So, all right, so here, if you're, let me just say this, I if you're starting to fade out a little bit, if you're, if you're maybe getting a little sleepy this morning, I really want you to listen to like the next four sentences because this is like build your life around kind of four sentences, right? This is about as good as this book gets, uh, the, ne- the next couple of sentences I'm going to read. So I want you to, if you're starting to fade, I want you to be all in for the next several verses because this is, this is wonderful truth we're going to read about. Second point I want to look at is rest of verse 12 through, through verse 14. The second point I want to look at is debt. So it says that we've been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised, us from, who raised him from the dead and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him having forgiven us of all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that has stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So Jesus did not stay dead, but he rose victorious over the grave, and we were raised with him. So baptism, right? Even in the picture you already used, baptism, we go under the water, symbolizing dying with him, but then we come out of the water, representing the newness of life in him, because we are raised with him. So verse 13 says that we were dead in our trespasses, in our uncircumcision, which means really this just in our allegiance to the world, in our allegiance to the old man. And we need to note that what he is saying in verse 13 is universal, that we were all dead, that this happened at our birth. When we were born physically, we, we, were, we were already dead spiritually. We were born sinful and opposed to God. We didn't sort of start out healthy and then slowly decay over time. We were born dead. We were born hostile to God. We were born dead in our trespasses and sins and the uncircumcision. We, were, we, were, we had allegiance to the enemy. The, 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 the moment we could, we could, in a sense, first stand, we began running away from God. But verse 12 says, but we were raised with him through the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead 
Verse 13 says, And God made us alive together with Him. We are now alive. We have been raised. But it's not just that we are alive and we have been raised. Some of the things that are so amazing about this is all that had been owed, though, all that had led to the death, all that had been, had been owed by our sins has been paid in His death. Because we died to the flesh, we, we don't owe it anything. Because we died, our old record has wiped away. There, there's not a clerical error that happened upon death. The old record is gone. It only counted, in a sense, while we were alive and we already died. So verse 13 makes clear we have been forgiven of all our trespasses. Verse 14 makes clear the, the legal demand against us is now gone. It's not... One of the things I love about this passage, it makes very clear, it hasn't been forgotten. It says what, that he, he has set it aside. Now, set it aside, right? When he says that our record has been, has been set aside, it's not that it's been neglected. He hasn't forgotten our record. It's, it's this intentional choice to, to sort of to actively set it aside. And I think the image that I have of, of, of what, what's being represented in this isn't just like, oh, yeah, there, there it is. I, I pushed it over there. It's this, it's this active setting aside of something. Almost the way, like, if, I don't know, if you went to, like, grad school, or, you know, kind of the end of school, right, and it kind of whatever your highest level of school is, and maybe there was, like, a semester or a class that was just particularly painful and just really hard and, and, you know, maybe, you know, at, but after, after that's all done, you know, maybe you're keeping some of the books and you're sorting, you're putting certain, bo- you know, books on your shelf or whatever. You just had this one class and the notes from this one class, like, no, that's not going on the shelf. That, I've, I'm looking forward to just getting rid of, I'm looking forward to having a bonfire, right, where the, these notes kind of, you know, that have just caused me so much pain, that's going in, right? Or we, we at, at our house, like, there's just, the, there's several just, I think, T-shirts that, um, that I own that M would be delighted if she could just sort of like, that I've owned since, like, the mid-90s, that, like, that have holes and are stained. I mean, just, they're just disgusting, but I love them. I think she would just, love, just, just set aside a couple of those shirts and have, like, she has a special spot for them, right? Or, like, won't it be sweet, like, when, when COVID really is kind of behind us and kind of more in the rear view, just to kind of, it would be fun to kind of just have, like, a big fire together, right? And just, like, not, not, not that the masks kind of just get lost somewhere under the, car, you know, one of the cushions in the car, right? But it would be fun to kind of, like, put them all in together, right? And kind of like, not just the mask, but like, man, all that this season represented, like, let's set these aside and really, we, we have a purpose for them, right? When, when he's talking about that, he, he is saying, listen, I think this is the image he got. No, it's not just that I sort of brushed them aside. No, I, I did something with, the, with your record. I did something with it. it. It is now gone. I have special plans for it. Our record what, what held us back, what, what, what was destroyed. He, Jesus is saying, listen, it has been destroyed. It has been nailed to the cross. There has been something very intentionally done with it. it it's, this, it's this thing. It, 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 he, had, he had a purpose and a plan for it, and it has been set aside. It has been canceled. It has been nailed to the cross. And so he canceled our record of debt. Back then, debts were publicly known. Debts were when, when someone was in debt, the, the person who they were in debt to would often, they would write them down and they would put them in this, in this public place. And it was sort of this way of sort of demanding repayment. And so if you had sort of a debt against you, you could see your name and sort of like in a public place and sort of how much you owed. And it was meant as a way of shaming. It was meant as a way of sort of publicly calling out your friends, hey, this guy better, better pay up. It wasn't just sort of debt, wasn't sort of this private thing between two parties, but he, they made it very public. They tried to make it very shameful. And Pat, this passage says there, there was a debt, and it had been written, and it has been paid in full. It has been 
nailed to the cross. But it's not just that it has been nailed to the cross. It says that he nailed it to the cross. That, that you almost see something personal by Jesus. Like, I'm, I'm wanting to make sure, not just that, yep, my debt happened to be covered by this thing. That you, the image is that Jesus Christ is personally taking our debt, personally nailing it to the cross. And it's not just something that happened to happen, that he is personally involved in nailing it to the cross. That he is very publicly declaring that the debt is paid. That this debt just wasn't sort of like the way mortgages work. And I guess this was sort of rolled into this thing. And I guess they're, it's not, it doesn't work like that. No, it's a very personal debt to Jesus. And he is very publicly paying it off. And he's making sure you know, and I am the one paying it. It has been nailed to the cross. I'm not reducing the payment. I'm not, I haven't waived the payment. He's saying it has been paid in full in the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so you are now debt-free. You are not a slave to sin or Satan or our flesh or the world or our guilt or our shame. Listen, the, the record of what we owed is true, but the debt has been paid. And Jesus isn't co-signing the bill. He's not picking up what we couldn't pick up. He took the entirety of it, and he has paid it in full. And however prominent it was, however public it was to us or to, to the world, as known as it was, Jesus has much more publicly and finally declared it to be paid in full. And so we are debt-free because our debt has been paid at the cross, because our cost has been paid. And I love how it also notes, it is for all sins. It's not just the sins of the past have now been paid. It notes all of our trespasses. So it's not that there's a sense of to be saved that he pays off our debt and now we start at zero, but oh, oh, next time we spend something on the credit card, we're, we're back in debt again. What, what he's noticing, all of our trespasses, past, present, and future, have been paid in full at the cross of Jesus Christ. This is forever debt-free. All future debt paid, all trespasses have been forgiven and nailed to the cross. There's a story that told of Martin Luther that he, the reformer Martin Luther, who was telling um, some, some of his students about a dream he had. And in the dream, Satan came to him and told him to write the story of his life. So he came to Luther and said that he had to write his life story. And so Luther starts writing about the story of his life. And, you know, in the dream, he's just filling up volumes with, with what he has done and and the, obviously the volumes had included much of the sins he had done, much of the way he had walked away from the Lord. And so he finishes writing the volume of his life and Satan reads it and comes up to him and says, did you write this? Is this true of you? And he says, yes. And he's beginning to be afraid because he's realizing the life he had lived was, was certainly not good enough to, to get to heaven. But then just in a moment he realized, but wait, no. And he says to Satan, no, the blood of Jesus Christ, God's son, cleanses me from all my sin. And in that moment, Satan plead. I think that's a picture of, of a person who clings to nothing but Jesus Christ crucified. And that's the picture of a, of a debt-free life. Third point that I want to look at, so we've had dead, we've had debt. Third point that I want to look at this morning is disarmed. Disarmed. Verse 15 says, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So in defeating sin and death and in rising again, he took all the earthly and spiritual forces and authorities 
And he showed his power over them. And it says that he has disarmed them. Now to be clear, Satan and his minions are still moving around. Our old flesh is still active and still waging war. But this passage makes very clear that they do not win. That these are sort of the, the, the last flailings of, of, of a dying animal. That Jesus has triumphed. And if that we are in him, we triumph over them as well. That he takes away all their power. I don't know if you've ever gone for a walk and, and, and kind of you have somebody who has a dog out walking with you and the dog's really loud and they're barking a lot, you know, and, and they'll come up to you and be like, oh, no, don't, don't worry about that dog. Like that dog's all bark, right? He's, he's really nice. He just, he just barks and he looks angry, but he's, he's really nice. And I usually don't believe those people because I think if they're... If that's really true, then, you know, why are you holding them back with all your power with a leash? But there's this sense of like, no, no, they're really, they're just, they talk a lot, but, you know, they're, they're really sweet, they're really cuddly, they won't, they won't do anything to you, they can't hurt you. That's kind of what they're trying to communicate, right? There's this idea that that dog's all bark, but no bite, right? Well, here's the reality of Satan. He's all bark and no bite. And you might think, really? Because my experience is that he, he bites, and it hurts. And we're going to come back to that. But here's what Jesus, here's what, here's what Paul is saying that Jesus has done to Satan. He triumphed over him. And he has disarmed all the rulers and all the authorities opposed to God. But we need to see a couple other aspects of this verse as well. Not only is Jesus more powerful than Satan or any other power of this world, there's a certain twist that sort of an ironic twist that this verse has. See, Christ was hung on a cross, which was a place of great shame. And he was mocked and he was jeered and he was beaten and he was spat upon in great shame. And on him was placed the sin of mankind in great shame. In the Old Testament, it says that cursed is anyone who is hung on a tree and he was hung on a tree. See, the strategy of the enemy wasn't only that the cross of Christ would be the death of Christ, though ironically it turned out to be the place he conquered death. It was, it was intended to bring shame. But what happened at the cross of Christ instead? They were the ones who were put to shame because the strategy didn't work, because he triumphed over them. So now Satan is in shame. Earthly authorities opposed to Christ are now in shame and defeated without power because he triumphed over them once and for all. So there's a certain irony in this passage, right? That, not, that, that the one who is looking to shame is the one who ends up being shamed. It's like they showed up to, we it's like they showed up to a battle and they found out that, uh, that all the weapons they brought, actually they only helped the other side. And so that's sort of what happened to them at the cross. But not only do we see throughout this passage that he, he does all this for us, that we rose with him, that we died with him, that we are debt-free in him, that we are forgiven in him, that we are alive in him, our accusers are shamed in him. There's this principle of sort of like, if even Satan is shamed, sort of like from the greater to the lesser, that, that, that if all rulers and all authorities are in shame, if sort of the, the greatest enemy that we have, the greatest enemy that God has and what we have is shamed, then all rulers and authorities are shamed. And if all of our trespasses are forgiven, if Satan has been defeated, if our debt is paid, if our record of wrong is canceled, then anything that looks to shame us actually is the thing that ends up being shamed. 
Here's what I mean. Do you ever hear the accusation of Satan trying to talk of your unworthiness? Listen, he, he is looking to shame you. But here's the truth. He's the one in open shame. You're the one in forgiveness. If your past and its sins are, are looking to shame you, here's the truth. He, he set that aside, nailing it to the cross. Your past is dead. You are in Christ, and you are alive in Christ. Guilt is looking to shame. Fear is looking to shame. But guilt has no place in this courtroom. Fear is the thing that should be running away afraid. If you were somebody who used to be marked by maybe just dishonesty, and just maybe somebody that would, would have lied regularly, and, and, and you see that sort of pattern looking to, from the past looking to, looking to shame you, listen, the truth is the one who has the final word. I remember just as a teenager, I wonder if any of you have ever felt this way, that just, that almost like, I felt like I carried these secrets, and if the secret of who I am was ever just, that was ever let out, then, then, then of course, just everything, everything would be ruined, that, that sort of I had to carry the secret of who I really was. But Jesus wants to set us free, and and being exposed for who we are is actually the, the pathway to freedom. If there's been sexual impurity in your past, listen, here's the reality. It has been defeated. It lies in shame. It, it has no claim. Jesus has paid for it, and he has released you from its power. For, for, the, for the believer who is repenting, now, not for the believer who's perfect, not for the believer, the believer who has never stumbled in any way, but for the believer who repents, and what we mean by repentance is not that we never sinned again, that we repented once and never struggled again. What repentance is that we, when we see our sin, we begin to walk away from it and we begin to walk towards Jesus Christ. And it's not just a one-time activity of I stepped in that direction, but it's just repentance is I'm walking on the pathway towards Jesus Christ and more and more away from my sin. So for the sinner who is repenting, listen, here's what we need to recognize, that, that the accusations of the enemy has no place, that they, they, they are not, in a sense, administered to in, by, by God's courtroom, that they have no voice, they have no standing. They are trying to shame, but they are the ones who are defeated. They are the ones that are shamed. They are the ones that have no power. So when, when the enemy, or even just our own heart, wants to, wants to tell us that, that we are weak, or that we are pathetic, that we are a mess, because, because look at our record Listen, I think we could just smile back and say, yeah, I am all those things. That's what, that's what qualifies me for grace. That's why I'm, I'm looking at Jesus' record, not my own. And so we can be confident as we walk ahead because we aren't confident in what we have done. We are confident in what Jesus Christ has accomplished for us. And listen, we could go after sin after sin, after accusation after accusation. Here's what we need to recognize. They have no place and they have no standing for those that are in Jesus Christ because every one of those things has been set aside and Jesus Christ has nailed them to the cross. There's a passage that I wanted to read out of Zechariah. Zechariah, the, the Old Testament prophet. And I just wanted to read a few verses. I just think it paints a beautiful picture of what we're talking about. But I want you to listen to particularly the way God is speaking to Satan in this passage. So in this passage, there is a, there is a guilty sinner, but he is one of God's children. And, and note the way that, G, that, 
that God doesn't rebuke the sinner, but the way he rebukes the sinner, but, but the way he rebukes Satan for trying to accuse him. It says this in Zechariah 3, verses 1 through 5. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at its right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed them with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. So whatever it is that is accusing you, the Lord will not entertain the accusation. So neither should we. Now listen, I think there's two, two tragic ways we could hear this and, and begin to deviate off course. One would be to hear this and think, oh, good, great, it's been nailed to the cross, I'm good to go, sweet, I can just live in total freedom. Yeah, you can live in total freedom, as long as you recognize that total freedom isn't now walking whatever way you want to walk. But this, is, this freedom is, 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 is just recognizing, no, this isn't cheap grace. But this is a freedom to walk in newness of life. And to walk in newness of life, it actually means I'm repenting of my sins as a process. So this, this Jesus has, has paid for every, every sin, but that means when we will walk in repentance, we are continually walking more and more towards Christ and away from sin. So listen, if you hear this as a sort of an excuse of not taking your sin seriously... Then, then you're not hearing the passage, you're not hearing the heart of God. Now, this is, this is a call to, to take our sin seriously, to walk in repentance, but to trust that it's, it's not my ability to per- repent well enough that is my hope, but is what is that fact that Jesus Christ has nailed all my sins, all my shortcomings, all the accuser's lies have been nailed to the cross. So as I walk in repentance, I can walk in freedom of him. So listen, repentance isn't sort of marked by self-pity. Repentance, accurately done, is walked by confidence in what Jesus Christ has done. So we walk towards Jesus as we walk in repentance. I think there's another way that this could be misunderstood. And it's to sort of just always feel like, yep, now I know I'm forgiven. And I know my sins have been, you know, nailed to the cross. I I know I'm forgiven. But, you know, my my true identity, my real identity is, yep, I'm going to go to heaven someday, but my real identity on earth is that I'm just this wretch, unworthy of everything. So, glad I'm forgiven, glad I'll get there, but for right now, the real call is to look, just keep looking at my sin and just to feel more and more and more unworthy. Listen, Jesus has nailed every sin to the cross. He has actively set aside all of our sins all of our weaknesses, and all of our shortcomings. The cross has paid the full debt of what you and I owe. He has set aside all that would hold us back from him. So listen, it is not holy to primarily look at yourself and to look at your sin and make that your identity. It is pleasing to the Lord to look at Jesus Christ and to take him at his word and to walk in newness of life.
Father, I just want to say one word as we close to those who do not yet know Jesus Christ. To me, this is a very hopeful passage. This is a very encouraging passage. This is, a, this is just a hopeful thing to think about walking in freedom and newness of life and having all of our sins forgiven, of having everything that would hold us back from God set aside by Jesus Christ so that we can walk as those who have died and have been raised in him. It is a wonderfully freeing just idea to think about. But I want to be very clear about something. If you do not yet know Jesus Christ, none of this applies to you. When Satan accuses you, when your own heart condemns you, if you are not in Christ, you have nothing to rebuff their claim. So if, I'll be very clear. If you're, if you're a kid being brought here by your parents today, listen, your parents' faith will not save you. Because you're sitting in church, that doesn't mean you're a Christian. Only Jesus Christ saves us from our sins. So I want you to be very clear. If you do not yet know Jesus Christ, none of this applies to you. But it can. If you turn from your sins and trust fully and only in Jesus Christ, in a moment, you go from death to life, from indebted to debt-free, to unable to fight anything to the enemy completely being disarmed. So I would plead with you, if you do not yet know Jesus Christ, repent of your sins and turn to him. Let's pray. Father, would you help us to be those who, who walk in genuine freedom, those who don't take 10 looks at ourselves and at our sins and, and occasionally see Jesus. But Lord, for every look at ourselves, would we, would we take 10 looks to the cross of Jesus Christ? Would we find our identity not in our unworthiness, but in what Jesus Christ has declared over us? Lord, would we not view freedom as the ability just to walk in any way we want, but in walking in repentance towards you? Would we be those who, who walk in this newness of life? And Lord, I do pray for anyone here who does not yet know you. Lord, would you open their heart to trust in what you have accomplished for them. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.